Are you an entrepreneur, a designer, a developer? Never before has it been easier to get your new venture off the ground. Whether you're just getting started or have already begun your journey, you've come to the right place. In each episode, we will dive into a new challenge, breaking it down into simple, digestible terms. I'm Dimitri. And I'm Kanasis. And you're listening to Listen, Ship, Repeat. Episode 9, Four Elements of Good Code. Let's fight. Awesome. What's Good. up, Dimitri? Uh, I'm a bit under the weather, honestly. Um, but I'll, I'll get through it. I am, uh, I am under the weather, literally, with uh, the kind of uh, low temperatures we have here. <laughs> yeah, ah, it's okay. We'll get through. We'll get through it. I guess. Yeah, we had a broken, uh, you know, faucet at the balcony. Yeah. To dig through the whole balcony and the cement. Oh my god! Great stuff. I'm sure our listeners are very eager to listen to the details, but. Uh, let's move on let's move on yeah let's so today uh we will try to communicate you know uh, a non-technical founder for example uh, four elements that make up a good code good code base healthy code base um so why don't you Kick it off, Nancy. Right. <clears throat> so uh, again, like in all episodes, our perspective here is uh, to inform the non-technical, all the while retaining uh, some uh, retaining interest for the technical people. And uh, code quality has been uh, a subject of uh, discussion uh, since I don't know <laughs> software was invented. And uh, the problem with quality code is that um, it's kind of elusive. There is no, well, uh, you know, there is no solid definition as to what quality code is. Uh, Every developer, if you ask them, they believe that their code is very good and everybody else's code is bad. And we want to try to uh, put some sanity into this uh, discussion and allow for the non-tech people to know uh, what uh, points to look into, to look, in, to look into under the carpet and uh, have a good understanding of uh, the quality of code produced by a developer or a team. So let's start right away by trying to uh, establish what is good quality code and good quality code is definitely not the code that uh, performs uh, its task that is a given i mean if the code base if the software didn't deliver what it was uh, was tasked uh, to deliver then it wouldn't uh, ever be produced uh, get rolled out in production so mm-hmm. um, that's definitely not an indication um, in my mind, uh, the <clears throat> the measure of quality code is the measure under which uh, another or the same developer can come back to the code base after a big period of time, read the code base, and understand what is going on. So that's, that's a good metric, right? Yeah, I mean, for me, it, it is about readability of the code, maintainability, how testable it is, and it is uh, it is a very specific mantra that says 
that we write code for developers to read, not for machines to execute. Okay. And this comes in contrast, you know, with um, there were there are many how can I say it waves trends. Mm-hmm. One of them is like uh, write less, you know, and uh, writing less is not good for readability. Uh, developers out of their, I don't know, it's not kind of laziness, but you can attribute it to that, will try to figure out ways to write the same thing with less characters. I see what you're saying. <laughs> but uh, maybe it's also uh, people trying to find the optimal way to uh, uh, write code. Well, yeah, uh, optimization is a different uh, subject entirely, and it's... N- what, are, what are you referring to, like uh, saving a few spaces here and there and, and some new lines? So, for instance, in JavaScript, okay. there was a whole big uh, you know, debate some five years ago, if I recall correctly, about whether we should use uh, semicolons or not. Mm-hmm. And there was this whole wave of saying that why should we use semicolons since the language doesn't need them and we type less. Oh, it's the uh, same in many languages. Right. Uh, Swift, Swift comes to mind. It comes down to personal, personal preferences. Uh, I know some people, for example, uh, in C, uh, you don't have to, you know, if it's a void function, you don't have to return, but people like typing it for the exact uh, reason that you mentioned before, readability. Explicitly, yeah, you're right. I mean, expi- uh, to, to be explicit is to raise the readability of your code. Exactly, uh, being explicit. So, um, no right and wrong, obviously. Uh, for the same... Well, I, find, I find wrong. I, I call it out. I think it's wrong. Yeah, you're... you're uh, I, th- I think it's wrong. It's your right to be wrong. It's, uh, you can be wrong. It's, it's all good. <laughs> all right. Uh... Yeah, for semicolons, uh, we can go on forever, but, uh, I mean, uh, what are you going to do? You're going to batch uh, concurrent, uh, actually, uh, sequential statements in a single line? No. So the new line is good enough. Um, other things, uh, what about uh, organization of file structures within the actual project file? Right, now we get into the actual elements of uh, good code, right? Ah, okay. I mean, you mentioned the readability, and uh, you can open up a, a single source file and uh, read it and see what's going on. But uh, I also look at good code as being more as an overarching uh, philosophy in your architecture and the way you choose uh, to architect your uh, uh, project. So how many modules do you have to carry out a single task? How many source files do you have to uh, car- carry out some functionality? Do you put everything in the same file? Do you break it up? And how re- readable is it to uh, read it once you have broken it up? And uh, there are ways uh, to do that. And uh, so, you know, that, that, that's your project uh, file organization. So, for example, uh, let's take a, a use case. Uh, let's take a an Xcode uh, workspace project so you can have stuff neatly tucked away as uh, you know your dependencies so that'll be nice uh, on the side your assets your images etc and this could be uh, I'm actually uh, moving away from Xcode this could be for any project so your, your files uh, your source files your assets in different folders uh, other files that you might use text uh, 
CSV, JSON, whatever, uh, within uh, your uh, file structure, for example, let's say you're working on a graphical user interface project, you can uh, uh, sort your files depending on uh, which view uh, you're working on. Uh, your model code will be in a different uh, uh, folder, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, you get the picture. And uh, that should also be reflected on the file system too. Uh, in case somebody doesn't want to open your project and just wants to go uh, looking for something, or if they explore it on GitHub or something. Right. I think I think Dimitri. Mm -hmm. I think Dimitri, this is this whole point is about the file system. Okay. Uh, yes, you're absolutely right. But sometimes, uh, for example, uh, in certain environments, the file system uh, doesn't actually reflect what you see when you open up the project folder. So I'm the philosophy that it has to, one-to-one. -one. I mean, for example, the Xcode project uh, I mentioned, uh, that's absolutely the case. What do you mean? Why do you say that? So your, your, file structure, your project structure, when you open up the project, yeah. you've manually set that. And uh, you can rearrange files there. So let's take all your images. You mean when you start a new Xcode project, it already has a boilerplate uh, with specific folders for you? Exactly. To start off. Exactly. But when you right. add files, um, they can be in a different folder in, within That's the project. That's your choice. Yeah. But what I'm saying is it'll be great, for example, if the file system reflected uh, the IDE. Right. Let's not get into that right now. What I, I think that uh, the message that we want to convey right here is that the organization of your file naming and folder structure uh, really gives uh, an idea about uh, how you perceive things. Where things are located and where things are located and what things are basically. Now, for for projects that already create a few folders for you that come with a boilerplate, that of course is a given. However, you start building on top of that, right? And if you are building for say six to twelve months on top of that boilerplate, it will go. It will look very different from how it started. And the way it looks, just by browsing the folders and the files, is an indication of uh, the, the quality of the code. Because if you browse through a structure of folders with uh, files that represent code, you know, parts of the code base, and you're really feeling lost, then it's, it's not your fault, you know? Um, in a well-structured uh, project with uh, proper folders and proper file names, uh, even a non-developer should be able to browse through the directories and understand what they are seeing. You know, this thing performs this thing. Um, this folder is about users. This folder is about um, items. Stuff like that. I mean, th very basic stuff, you know. And this is, the contrast of this, the versus of this, is like having a folder where all of your files are inside, uh, you know, all your code base is in a single folder. Yep. With names that don't, don't make sense. Yes, uh, I think uh, we really uh, carried this point uh, across to our listeners. All right. I mean, uh, so um, uh, element of good code, number one, organization of your you know, file and folder structure, 
throughout your project. It's paramount. It, it helps yeah. even other developers, you know, come in to the project easily and understand what's going on. And uh, just to punctuate this before we move on, very similar to what you do with your regular files. I'm sure uh, if you're organized enough, uh, the way you uh, sort your personal documents, whether it's in your Dropbox or your machine, uh, the philosophy is very similar exactly. to a code base. Right. Organization skills. So, um, element number two is the module health. And module, by module, we mean basically a single file. And uh, you could even say that it's about the whole code base. But let's stick to a single file, a module. And um, so we select a random module out of the code base. We open it up and we just uh, plain look at it, right? We scroll down, up and down and the first thing we notice is how many lines of code does it have and in coding lines of code is a very important metric and in quality code and of course depending on the language there is a limit to how many lines of code you can have before your module becomes unreadable or <coughs> unmaintainable um, in JavaScript, that's, that limit is around 300 lines. In other languages that are less expressive, less verbose, it can go down to 200 or 150. And of course, that number gets dictated by the company CTO, who says, guys, folks, girls, uh, your modules are not going to be more than 300 lines of code. Break them up. Mm. I'm going to have to respectfully disagree there. I can tell you about three or four environments that come to mind that just a boilerplate, if you auto-generate a file, uh, it could be just about 300 lines. And you write on top of that boilerplate. I cannot believe that. Yeah. So, for example, uh, let's take uh, uh, if you know an Android application for one activity. So the activity... Uh, in an Android application, for example, is uh, what you see on the screen, or, or a general GUI application. In in, uh, uh, in any case, so if you generate the uh, the class file, that has uh, some standard methods that all of these activity classes use. So there you go, fifty, sixty, a hundred. Um, if you add like a list of something and you have an adapter, and this is just like skeleton code, it goes up. So I wouldn't recommend to our users uh, a specific number, but I would say try to get it to the minimal, minimal possible uh, amount of lines. I'm not saying these languages... Uh, I, I mean, I said, I said it differs per platform, right? Yes, you did, you did. Um, so if your boilerplate starts with 150 lines... You can't possibly uh, right. impose that limit on you. The idea here is that... Uh, there will not be files with two to 3,000 lines of code. We've seen that before. That will never happen. That will never well, happen. we've seen it. I, I, th I think, yeah, I mean, you've seen it. You've seen it all the time. Uh, you can probably uh, go to a random uh, repository in GitHub and right now uh, and see something like that. Um, right. In any case, uh, it's, it's difficult for that to be justifiable. So as you scroll down the file and you look it up and down, you figured out how many lines of code it is. The next thing that you want to understand is the basically the look and feel. Alrighty. And that, that means a lot of things. Now, if you're not a trained developer, the look and feel 
for you must be something that as you look throughout the code, you kind of start to understand what is going on. There are methods, names that make sense to you. There are variable names that make sense to you. And you understand a little bit about what is going on. You have a rough idea. If you are a little more expert on development, then you need to, you, you start to appreciate better, you know, smaller things like how small each method is, how clean the indentation and the format is, and there is no nesting. And, you know, little small stuff like that, especially language-specific stuff uh, that will give you hints as to whether, you know, a certain specific pattern has been followed when, development, when developing the application, or it's just random rumblings from, like, 20 different people and each one of them did something different and you see different code styles within the same module and stuff like that. All right. What else could we talk about here? Uh, zombie code, uh, dead code. If you haven't used something in a while or you wrote something to replace something previously, remove it. It doesn't have to be there. Uh, it'll make readability uh, less valuable. It might increase compile times. You can safely remove it. It'll be in the repo forever. Uh, duplicate blocks of code with identical functionality or the uh, copy-paste school of programming. <laughs> uh, very easy trap to fall into, uh, very easy to avoid too. If they're identical, uh, get rid of uh, one of them and uh, pick uh, what you think works better for you. Uh, and uh, also... Uh, not reinventing the wheel. Um, there's a lot of uh, mechanisms uh, out there that didn't exist years ago uh, as open source uh, becomes not only um, the most popular way of sharing code but uh, the norm. Uh, people write their stuff and they share them. And uh, these days there's a lot of dependency management systems that are very easy to install and that makes it very easy for you to... Uh, uh, get this code into your project. So let's say you're starting a new project, there's a specific functionality set that you have to cover. Um, go to GitHub, for example, uh, CocoaPods. Um, what other dependency systems are there? Well, there are many, and if you are, you should know them, you know, as you're developing on your language. W within your domain. So you go there, you, you can search around, and uh, you'll find something. And you can bring it to your project. And so sometimes you might even have to tweak it. So uh, most of the work is done for you anyway. Uh, and if you don't find it, write it and put it back on open source. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Excellent advice. Excellent. It, it could be, uh, just as a, as, a, uh, as a side note, uh, it could be a single method you wrote. And if you think it's uh, it'll be useful, um, just put it out there and uh, share some of that goodwill. Right. Uh, put something out there into the world. Um, so you talked about methods uh, just now. Um, let's uh, focus a bit on variable and naming schemes. Very exciting topic. I just have to say that uh, most modern environments uh, support autocomplete. So you don't have to have a single 
character variable names. Uh, you can go crazy, as a matter of fact. Uh, you can be very comprehensive in your uh, naming uh, your variables. Uh, you don't have to write many sentences, but you, you don't have to say PKT, SZ. You can say packet size, camel case, and uh, it's very uh, readable. Uh, sorry for the terrible example, but uh, I think you catch my drift. Again, a lot of this stuff comes back to readability, doesn't it? So, uh, so be careful how you name your stuff. Same applies for methods, for classes, any sort of uh, object in your code. Right. And, you know, naming uh, stuff in your code base and in your project file is one of the two hardest things a developer has to do, right? <laughs> we all know the famous quote uh, by Phil Carton. There are only two things hard in computer science, cache invalidation and naming things. So that's a, no, right? that's a funny yeah. thing. And the other, the last, uh, you know, um, metric of module health is documentation. Whether you see uh, comments throughout the code base and uh, doc blocks, if the language, uh, well... Uh, you know, welcomes them. Doc blocks are the documentation. They're a very specific kind of documentation on how you document your methods, what they expect as input, what they, uh, what values they output. So, uh, especially in uh, non-typed languages like um, PHP, JavaScript, uh, and Python. Uh, where you do not have strict types, a variable can be any type, can be a string, can be a number, can be an array. So uh, those doc blocks give you some kind of uh, security as to what is expected by the method. And uh, that helps. Now, of course, documentation goes beyond uh, the limits of a single module. Uh, it applies to the whole project. So you open up the project probably on GitHub as a repository, does it have a readme that will guide you as to what you're seeing right here? You know, this is project X that does Y. In order to install it, you need to perform these steps, one, two, three, four, five. In order to run the tests, you need to do X. And any other note that would be important, you know, to deploy the service, perform this command, to reset the database, perform the other command. All of these are are critical documentation that the original author knows, but has to share for the other parts of the team, right? And uh, you can use the readme, you can use the projects wiki that's provided for free by GitHub. So uh, there really is no excuse there. Just put down the effort. One of the things that will help you and uh, discipline you towards the direction of documenting is actually contributing uh, or creating open source software because by definition you have to document everything there uh, so that the other people, the other, the rest of developers can understand what's going on. Cool. Now let's move on to the on to the third element of good code and that is logging. Logging has been neglected by most uh, developers, uh, hasn't been given the <clears throat> the value that it deserves. Uh, basically, logging is your, uh, how can I call it, you know, your lifeboat out of uh, tough situations. 
because by the moment your code base reaches a certain size, let's say, I don't know, more than 10, 20,000 lines of code, and you have no logging, and while you're running your server, it just randomly breaks at some point, you will not be easily be able to trace the path towards where the application crashed. Whereas if you have logging, you can see right there and then in front of you which uh, execution path was followed and uh, have a better idea as you start to debug the the problem of where to look. Uh, here, here. And, and extending on that, uh, for, for logging, you mentioned uh, exceptions, etc. There's a lot of uh, uh, software packages out there that uh, will uh, even give you a stack trace uh, of what went wrong. So in combination with your logging, uh, I think you're safe to be able to uh, quickly fix uh, what happened uh, where you otherwise wouldn't. Absolutely. And what's the last point, uh, Dimitri? Uh, testing, uh, unit testing, testing driven development. Uh, unit testing is a, is a form of uh, automated uh, testing uh, used uh, by uh, most uh, software developers these days. Uh, they check uh, that your program works. They're given a specific set of inputs, uh, some processing happens, and you get uh, an expected output or expected uh, functionality. Uh, if you don't, your test fails. If it does, your test was a success. So, moving forward, when you change something, and you run your tests, and they pass, it means that uh, you didn't break something, and or that your code is well enough to, written well enough in a testable, quote, way, that uh, you can make changes to it. The larger the code base, uh, the more important this becomes, because stuff can break anywhere, and uh, you mentioned 20,000 lines of code, maybe uh, up to half a million lines of code, a million lines of code. Uh, having tests, checking every time uh, in an automated way uh, saves time and lets you focus on uh, building the product. Right, and let's, um, you know, allow me to inject a small correction here. Um, first off, it, it, you know, it's not just unit tests. There are all kinds of tests, like integration testing, behavioral testing. Uh, Absolutely. We can use all sorts of, all sorts of things. UI, UI testing. Exactly. exactly. But no testing is automated. Every test that you write, you need to run it on yourself. The automation part comes with uh, your CI. Mm-hmm. CI is uh, initials for continuous integration. It is an external service uh, that either you have built on your own using uh, software like Jenkins, or there are already made services out there like uh, Travis or Circle CI. Two, the two most popular ones. Yeah, I mean, two, these, those are two of the most popular ones. I, I, I use both of them. I use Circle CI for my professional projects and Travis for my open source. Exactly. Exactly. Same. same. So uh, the idea here is that CI is going to pull your code whenever you make a change on it on the repository, let's say, again, GitHub, 
We need, we need to get a sponsorship from GitHub. So uh, let's say uh, you push your code, you push something on GitHub, uh, that triggers a series of events that result in uh, the CI pulling your code and starting to run the tests on it. So this is where automation comes and uh, it's basically essential. And you wouldn't want to start a project without having solid... Uh, testing foundations in place because after a while things get so much complex and so much interdependent that a single that a single fix uh, in one part of the code might affect another part that you didn't even expect and it's only through automated testing that you are going to catch this uh, this problem uh, before it rolls out to production and a customer gets to experience it and if and when they report it back to you. Great. So we've uh, covered all these things. Uh, what can we tell our listeners, what resources or advice can we give our listeners in order to be able to exercise or become better at what you mentioned? So I think the number one thing or the first thing uh, could be uh, pick an open source project uh, you can find plenty at varying degrees of uh, uh, complexity or uh, levels. Uh, a little widget that somebody wrote all the way to the, uh, the Linux kernel. Uh, these things, uh, the more popular repositories, the more people contribute to it. So you get a lot of these uh, uh, best practices and uh, you can definitely learn from that. And uh, um, so I, I really ac- encourage it first uh, to uh, uh, discover uh, a, a project and then maybe you can start contributing to it. And that could be anything. And, uh, right, right. I mean, you know, fr- from a typo in the documentation to adding an extra method to a class that you think that uh, would have uh, helped you. So. Uh, that'll help you uh, practice and, and, and definitely become better at writing your code. And I guarantee you'll see uh, results within weeks. Definitely. I mean, even if not weeks, months or maybe years after you really process what has happened and uh, just the experience of mingling with somebody else's code and the code that is publicly available and under the scrutiny of your peers um, is enough to open your mind to new ways of thinking and approaching problems. And like I said already before, one of the benefits of uh, participating in open source is the discipline you get in documentation. Because documentation is not just opening a, a new file and start typing, right? You have to convey a message and you have to convey it in a way that uh, most of the people will relate to. And that, that is an acquired skill. It doesn't come for free. Yep. And uh, lastly but not least, uh, my favorite is uh, one of my own philosophies that I have. And this is a get more towards uh, developers, but it could also help uh, CTOs, managers that uh, work with developers to help them improve. I kind of think that uh, refactoring is now... Uh, in the sense that it's not discouraged to go back to your code and change it, uh, but um, get your major architectural uh, uh, philosophy in the uh, on the get-go. And 
that takes a lot of experience, but it's definitely something that you can have as a goal and, and move towards it. So go back, change your code, always improve it, but get, get to a certain level in the beginning of your planning. Saves you time, money uh, in the future. Dimitri, would you say that this has to do with the general advice that says don't, don't put out for tomorrow what you can do today or it's something else? No, it, it's, it's more like that. Uh, when I first started out, uh, I, I actually enjoyed... So this is completely personal what I'm saying. I really enjoyed going back to old code and like uh, doing uh, huge changes. Uh, but over the years... Uh, I like actually your code or other people's code. Uh, my specific code. Your old code, okay. But uh, on on my current project, for example. But over the years, I got really interested more in like always building new stuff because that's where the world is going. All these new uh, toys and trinkets pop up, and uh, you just get into this uh, way of thinking to always build the next big thing. Uh, complete personal. Not saying this. Is right or wrong? I think we are all on the same bus. <laughs> so they, they kind of made me say, okay, let me get it right the first time because there's so much stuff that I would like to do from now on that uh, I would never have the time to go back for the big changes. Unless I have to. This, uh, it, this is not advice. This is me just uh, sharing stuff for my own personal story. But yeah, just keep the uh, refactoring is now. Make uh, what you think of it. Let me say my, my own line. <laughs> be, pragma- uh, be pragmatic, you know? Yep. Of course. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, it's a slippery slope to want to do everything perfect. And especially as developers with the excessive amounts of uh, OCD, um, it's, a known, uh, it's a known attribute. So the answer to that is just uh, be pragmatic and uh, don't burn yourself out. Don't waste time on things that uh, do not provide value for your product. Yep. Awesome. So today we went through four elements of good code. Uh, organization, your module health, logging, and testing. By no means an exhaustive list, but definitely... Uh, a checklist you can bet on, in my humble uh, opinion. Something uh, short and sweet to remember. Exactly. And uh, that's uh, that's it for uh, today, Thanasi. So, uh, everyone, uh, you can send us your question by calling us on 866-370-5050 from anywhere. You can email us at hello at listen, ship, repeat. And uh, you can drop a couple of reviews or stars uh, on iTunes. Uh, you don't have to go through the tedious process of writing a review. It just accepts uh, stars. And uh, that makes us... Uh, happy. <laughs> it, it makes us happy. Um, a lot of shows say that it, it makes us go up uh, in, in the rantings. Uh, more people uh, discover us and listen to us. And uh, we're definitely one of those shows. So uh, feel free to uh, share your opinion on iTunes about us. And uh, with that, uh, the episode has uh, come to a close and uh, we'll speak to you uh, very soon. Uh, Thank you, everyone. Uh, Ciao. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.